This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Welcome to episode 65 of Paranormal Dads. I'm your co-host, Pat. I'm Eddie. And I'm Andy. Join us as we go in search of the world's monsters, myths, and mysteries, right here on Paranormal Dads. And once again, we are back. Here we are. Here we are. Here you are. Andy's here too. Back and better than ever. There he is. <laughs> Got a heating pad on my back, but we are paranormal dads after all. Yeah, oh, man. Eddie, <laughs> Eddie's sitting over here with an inside out shirt. I'm just wishing they'd, they'd put the heating pad around uh, the country because I'm, yeah. I'm ready to warm up. It's I'm, cold. It, I'm, I'm getting tired of this cold weather. Yeah. Pat's ready to come out of hibernation and itch it, you know, scratch his itchy back on a tree. And... But really, you think about it, we got one more month. About I mean, a month. We, we got we got February ahead of us, and then it start, it, it's all downhill from there. Right? Pretty much. Yeah. You know, sometimes March, I mean, will... March can be kind of... Yeah, March, is bi- March, has, March is up and down. March is a little bipolar with weather here. You got to do a little bobbing and yeah, weaving bobbing and, and talking and... trash with March, but you get through that and <laughs> there's March, April and you've got the flowers. You, you want to be 90 degrees? What do you want? <laughs> oh, man, especially here in Nebraska. Like We had a couple of days of like 50 plus temperatures and then like two days later it was like negative 12 and I'm outside like, <laughs> this is the worst. Eddie, I, I have to ask Eddie because you said you... Uh, you realize that your shirt is inside out, and you just don't care. Yes, <laughs> that's what I said. So at what time of day did this occur at? I put my shirt on this morning. Uh, I, I drove my girlfriend to the airport early this morning, and I got home, and I saw that it was inside out, and I just go, huh, huh. my shirt's inside out. How's that happen? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I got dressed in the dark. I mean, I was just like, I don't care. And I just walked around. I navigated this space we call life with an inside-out shirt. And I just don't care. My tag is. Hey, you just take that that uh, wardrobe malfunction and you you live with it. I just like hey, if the cool kids are doing this. That's all right. I'm setting a trend. Be a trendsetter. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. My shirt's inside out. My ball cap is backwards. What am I doing? He's ready to go. Got shoes on my hands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hey, we got another great episode in store for you guys. Uh, Hopefully, you enjoyed the last of our first installment for Alaska Week. And we've got another Alaska uh, mystery coming up. Ooh. But first. Some recent sightings. So my recent sightings is maybe more of a recent development, a recent like philosophy or a recent like observation that I want to share with you guys. Okay. So picture in your mind, Egypt, Egypt, go back in time to ancient Egypt land. (laughs) Here you are (laughs) around all these freaking mummies. (laughs) We're originally from New York. We're from New We're, Jersey. But we, we now live in Egypt. <laughs> Here we are in freaking Egypt. We're in Egypt. And the iconography of Egypt, if you will, some of the things about Egypt. And Egypt has fascinated and flummoxed us as a, as a, as a modern society, air quote modern society. And still to this day, we don't know how certain things were done in Egypt. Like, how are the pyramids built? We don't fully know this. We don't have a real answer for that yet. Um, why were some of these structures even built? What purpose did they serve? Uh, even unto the Sphinx, we know for a fact that it used to be something else. They changed the face to be something else. It was the first dog man. First dog man. <laughs> it was the first dog man. <laughs> One of the guys at my work was like, how cool would it be if like the Sphinx had, like you know, inside its head is like a bunch of buttons and stuff, and it like stands up and turns into Voltron. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a transformer. <laughs> That'd be the best thing ever. Uh, under, uh, under the Sphinx's like paws, there's yeah. supposedly chambers that you cannot get into, that they will not let you into. You will die. But there's things in inside of there. There's things inside. Because they've used ultrasound, x-ray, whatever technology that there are things in there that are big. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. treasure chests, whatnot. So all sorts of mysteries about ancient Egypt. And one of the things about Egypt was how advanced was this society? How advanced was this? And so much of some of the things that we have taken for granted or assumed about Egypt are starting to kind of be theorized and might be wildly different. And that society may have been more, way more advanced than we give them credit for. One of the things, the flower of Egypt is the, um, so it's the lotus flower. And the idea is like, oh, yeah, it represents this and all this stuff and all this stuff. Apparently, the lotus flower has a certain amount of hallucinogenic uh, properties and allows the people who consume this flower to reach a transcendental state where they've elevated their consciousness, consciousness is, and they're able to maybe even tap into a higher frequency by consuming this uh, the flower of the lotus. So... If you look in a lot of um, Egypt's iconography, this lotus flower has just worked into so many things. It is all over the place. In fact, some of the, they show um, ancient like uh, pharaohs, the lotus is worked into the patterns on their like cloaks and on their like, dr- like their like tunics and all these things. And it even shows in a lot of hieroglyphics, um, um, wise people literally smoking it has like a long pipe, like a Gandalf looking like Lord of the Rings pipe where right. they're smoking the lotus flower, the, the petals of this flower. So the idea that e- the Egyptians were kind of telling us we kind of partake of some of these herbs and things to help kind of elevate our, our, our consciousness, consciousnesses. So one of the things that has been a kind of a mystery when some of the iconography of Egypt has been what I'll call, what people call uh, the Eye of Horus. If you can picture this, what it looks like, it has like almost like a silhouette of an eye with an eyebrow above it with like a little curly cue underneath. And we've believed that to be a symbology for wisdom and enlightenment and all these things. And not really putting two and two together. Um, more and more discoveries have been made. recent. So we'll bookmark that. More and more discoveries have been made in modern science about the human brain and a thing that's inside the human brain called the pineal gland. Right. It's called the pineal gland, not because it's a funny word, but because, <laughs> because we're all 12 years old and we laugh right. at things like that. <laughs> he said pineal. He said pineal. Uh, it's shaped like a little pine cone. It's uh, a very like it's a pine cone looking thing. And it is almost smack dab in the middle of your brain. We all have one. It's okay. a little gland. And the pineal gland uh, in ancient cultures is actually referred to as your third eye. Ah. And they say uh, you can even, if you point to the center of your, like between your eyes and go up to a tiny bit and go straight back in the center of your brain, that's where the pineal gland is. And the pineal gland, one of the things that they are now all but certain that it does is that it secretes a chemical or a, uh, a, an enzyme called DMT, dimethyltryptamine, where DMT, and Andy's nodding like crazy over here. Yeah. Uh, the DMT is solely responsible for a lot of your dreams, a lot of the things that you are experiencing in dream states. DMT, uh, as you're sleeping, is being pumped out into your bloodstream from your pineal gland. Hmm. And... There are a lot of people who believe the pineal gland is where a lot of these uh, kind of where, they, where the soul resides. I mean, that's kind of some of the idea, right, Andy? Stop me when I'm well, dead wrong here. I've just read a lot of literature that that's talking about the link between the pineal gland, or the, however you say it, the pineal gland and uh, intuition. Yeah, there's a lot of intuitive people. Not a lot, but there's been some studies done on on professional psychics. You know, is there a pineal gland? Is it larger? Is it smaller? Is it, you know, what, whatever. It, there, there's always been said that there's a link between that. Um, coincidentally, I think I touched mine when, when, I, when I was in first grade, you know, stuck a oh. sky blue crayon up my nose far enough. I swear I tickled it. <laughs> yeah. And that's how he became psychic. That's, that's, how, that's where my journey began. So, we don't advise anybody to try that, by the way. Yeah, don't, don't tickle your pineal gland with, a, with some chopsticks. Just don't do it. Don't do that. It's not Seek worth it. Seek medical advice first. <laughs> so I want to st- tickle my pineal gland, but in a safe way. Right, right. Um, so... With this knowledge and this with sci- modern science doing more and more research about dimethyltryptamine and what it does, and there's people who've taken this a step further and have said, okay, so what happens if we just do, instead of using uh, our natural body that creates DMT, what if we were to, say, take a dose of DMT and put it straight into the bloodstream? What See, happens? that's what I was just thinking. Can you, like, 
you know mainline it. <laughs> <laughs> Give yourself a shot of this and have like really wild dreams. So or? it's funny, and there's a whole uh, documentary which I will recommend to you guys and to our listeners. Uh, it's on Amazon. You can rent this for a few bucks. It's called DMT: The Spirit Molecule. And it is one of the most fascinating documentaries I've ever seen. And there was a physician that was one of the big Ivy League schools. I want to say Harvard. Please don't kill me if I'm wrong. But it was one of the fancy uh, schools. And he's like, I want to do a controlled um, uh, experiment using dimethyltryptamine. And he had people who volunteered. And everybody who was like, I just want to see what this does. Skeptics, people who were like, I'm a psychic warrior, man. Like everybody signed up for the, <laughs> everybody signs up for this thing. And he um, uh, administers uh, in a clinical environment. It's all very clean and safe and all these things. Um, a, a FDA approved study on dimethyltryptamine and what okay. it does to the human brain when put when given a shot of it before you go to sleep. Right. What happens is very, very, very weird and interesting. Ooh. All of these people, all different people, different walks of life, completely individuals, didn't have any sort of like discussion, didn't know the other one existed. They all had very similar experiences. They would get this dose of DMT, they'd go to sleep, they'd get a dose of DMT, they'd put them in a relaxed state, and they would basically feel like their body, like their spirit had left their body. They would basically enter into a whole other dimension where they would interact with another intelligence. And some people said that it presented themselves as an angel-type figure or some sort of wise being was addressing that person. Welcome, Pat. Welcome to Dimension X. <laughs> and this is your true self. And okay. the, basically the message that all these people received was your physical reality is a temporary condition. This you are an interdimensional energy being, and this is the real world, and now behold this. And it is almost a Willy Wonka-style like kaleidoscope of experience from everybody at that point, but right. the very similar beats in these people's stories. Interesting. So, so it kind of makes you wonder if some of these uh, near-death experiences you know, that you catch wind of, whether it's... Uh, I guess it'd be in the same wheelhouse, perhaps, as some of these people who have near-death experiences. Maybe at the moment, right before death, there's a flood of DMT into the system right. or something. Or, you know, and, and then in some cases, those people, like, genuinely actually physically passed away and went to a different place. But it sounds similar. I mean, because a lot of people who have near-death experiences, they interact with some form of a higher power, a higher intelligence. They have this sense of peace, a sense that life as we know it is not the only reality. Yeah. You know, and you know the jury's out on all these things, but it's very like worthy of you know discussion and more research and all that stuff. That being said, we have this knowledge now, and now we have the Egyptian iconography. We know that they're a fairly advanced civilization, but also there's these weird hieroglyphics, and people started noticing uh, a a weird sh similarity between the shape of the Eye of Horus and a cross-sectional uh, like not. Like, like right down the middle. You know how your brain is in two halves. Right. right down the middle. You split the brain in half. You look at it. If you actually take the eye of Horus and overlay it over the pineal gland and the brain stem, what you get, and I'm showing this to these guys, and we will put an image of this up on our Facebook page, what you get is the eye of Horus is basically outlining the pineal gland, the brain stem, and the uh, what I believe to be the hypothalamus, the uh, the part of the brain up on top that has decision making in there, but literally, it's almost. And this is where people could be like, "Look, that's just a crazy coincidence." Okay, cool. You're no fun at parties. <laughs> but the, <laughs> but the other side of this is that there is an active discussion happening: is did the ancient Egyptians have a connection to the pineal gland, and or pineal, whatever, <laughs> um, uh, the uh, the pineal gland? And the understanding that this was a, a window into another dimension for us as human beings. And that the brainstem and the, the hypothalamus and that this and the brain, the brain root right here, that all of this works to serve kind of a, if you will, a house for your soul. Huh. And that is kind of the, the overarching kind of discussion with this recent kind of di uh, discovery of what this iconography might actually mean. That was the most heady and scientific <laughs> recent sighting we have ever had, Eddie. Well so. done. Class dismissed. <laughs> and I like how it was kind of an ancient uh, 
sighting and a recent sight. You know, yeah, recent discovery. Yeah, no, we're just taking his... Yeah. Is the medulla oblongata, like, <laughs> like attached to any of this? Because I just like saying that word. Something's wrong with your medulla oblongata. My, my medulla oblongata. <laughs> Uh, that's the rage. That's the anger center. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I think that's where, like anger lives. It's like, uh, I, I don't know, but I don't, I don't believe the medulla oblongata was discussed in <laughs> was this portion. Discussed. Okay. We'll have to see at some point, but we'll have but, to. Um, that, that's for another episode. That's a we'll different talk. episode. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but hey, maybe, hey, t- t- take some DMT. Actually, DMT is a highly controlled substance. I'm sure it I is. I don't recommend trying to find some <laughs> on the streets, uh, but. Keep a dream journal for sure. Yeah, yeah. And there's ways to maybe try to kind of exercise that. There are, uh, there is a way to consume DMT. In fact, more clinics are coming out with this. They're like spiritual retreat places where you can consume a beverage called ayahuasca, mm-hmm. which is dimethyltryptamine in a beverage. Interesting. And apparently, it tastes like what you would imagine swamp things armpits <laughs> taste like. I heard it can make you violently sick. It can make you. It can. Yeah. I actually have some have some friends who uh, lived in Peru for a little stretch of time and they, they were they were doing some of those ayahuasca circles and crazy experiences so know? it's not mountain dew sweet tea blue stuff it's, <laughs> no it's no <laughs> it's like bubbly brown juice but nice. like it looks like it looks nasty it looks like it's like mud water and you're like you gotta drink that up like, i gotta do what with this so, so there are ways to do this and those clinics are like legitimate places like even in the u.s now there's actual places in the united states i think most of them are in california or other parts of the country but you can find an ayahuasca <laughs> clinic and show up and be like hey man i'm here to see the DMT elves. That's a whole different thing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you for this installment of Recent Sightings. My name is Eddie. I'll show myself out. Thank you, Eddie. It's time for Pop, Culture, and the Paranormal. All right, guys. Today for Pop, Culture, and the Paranormal, I found a website, slashfilm.com. Kind of... Makes me think of our, our uh, friend Billy. Oh, from, yeah. You know, horror film extraordinary. Big horror horror movie fan. But this is specifically the top, I don't know how they came up with this number, top 47 Bigfoot and or Yeti <laughs> Abominable Snowman 48, movies. 48, that's just too much. So just many. too much. So I, I narrowed it down to the top 10. Ooh. So here you go. Top 10, according to SlashFilm.com, best Bigfoot and Yeti movies nice. ever. Here we go. Ever. Nice. There we go. And some of these... I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I haven't heard of some of these, and I was. There's a lot of Bigfoot movies. There are more than you would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some bad Pat, ones. And there are <laughs> there some are bad ones. Pat and I've done some dives on some of these, and we're like, wasn't that one the le- the creature of Black Lake? Oh yeah, that was so good. It was good. And then it was so, it was ho- it was so bad, but so, so bad good. it was good. It yeah. just couldn't look away. Fun to watch. <laughs> well, now coming in, I was this surprised me. Number ten is Harry and the Hendersons. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You'd think that one not would number be one. Little, you think you'd think that'd be, be up one. there just because it was so popular, you know, so I mean, well known. And that the the costume that they yeah. had for for Harry, pretty good, was next level. Yeah, like the yeah. face on that it was. Oh yeah. But if you haven't, uh, you know, if you've been living under a rock since 1987, mm. the, the premise of this movie: a family welcomes Bigfoot into their home, and hijinks ensue. Uh, Rick Baker actually designed Harry. So, of course, it's the best-looking Bigfoot to ever grace the screen. He's uh, a big horror movie guy. I think he was involved with, like, American Werewolf in London, maybe, even. Okay. Yeah. I might be wrong on that one, but Pat, Pat would know. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. It's, yeah. it's lighthearted. It's, it's a comedy. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's, be, it's best for kid, Very kid-friendly. Very oh, yeah. It's a yeah. super... I mean, it's, it's a comedy, basically. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple scenes where you're like, oh, God, is he going to kill that guy? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah. Another one from 1987. 1987 must have been a good year for Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. Uh, this one's called Cry Wilderness. Uh, the story is basically a boy and his Bigfoot drink soda and help protect the forest wildlife from bad attitudes. <laughs> bad attitudes. <laughs> you got me yoked right there. Uh, but as far as the Bigfoot itself, uh, it's you know it's a guy in a suit and a pretty expressive face is, is how it sums it up. But it was entertaining. Uh, overall, uh, they say it's a, it was a pretty bad movie, but entertaining nonetheless. Um, filmmakers and cast are sincere in their belief that they've made something positive and good, but every other minute brings some some new absurdity. Uh, let's see. Is so, it the Mac and Me of, business, of it, a Bigfoot movie? It kind of <laughs> sounds like it, but uh, won't, won't be winning any Oscars, we'll put it that way. Dang it. 
2011, <laughs> there's a movie. It's actually called Letters from the Big Man. Huh. So the storyline is a scientist heads into the woods to collect samples and get over a recent breakup. Mm. But in addition to the meditative calm she's seeking, she also finds Bigfoot. And he looks fantastic with an impressive size and tangible feel to his presence and appearance. So hmm. whatever suit and props they were using is pretty pretty decent. Uh, it's one of the more unusual Bigfoot movies, apparently. It was an indie drama and uh, kind of mystical, mythical. It embraces the connection between people and nature. And uh, while it never becomes the Bigfoot thriller that some viewers may have hoped for, it still offers something unique and uh, pretty reflective instead. So, huh. Huh. What was that one called again? That one was called um, Letters from the Big Man. Letters from, Letters the, big from man. the Big Man. From Santa? <laughs> <laughs> you guys ever heard of a movie called Demon Warp? No. <laughs> Neither no. had I. That's Pat's signature <laughs> wrestling move, though. <laughs> the Demon Warp. <laughs> he comes Pat falling demon out warp. of the rafters with the Demon Warp. <laughs> well, 1988, the story is basically a group of friends who cross paths with some Bigfoots and worse while looking for a fun time uh, in the woods. As far as the, the the monster costume in the in the movie, it was effective enough, but uh, unspectacular up close. Uh, the big guys are simply uh, very simply designed, but find power in their aggression, sneakiness, and backstories. You know, it's a from the late '80s. It's a good pairing uh, with Night of the Demon, as it takes a traditional Bigfoot story into some crazy and unexpected places, while also delivering on the violence and. Uh, <laughs> And some uh, skin. There's a lot of skin showing in this movie, apparently. Like so. Bigfoot skin? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> it's all <laughs> fur? Humans, <laughs> human skin. Oh. Not so much kid-appropriate like Harry and the Hendersons. Well, my goodness. As 1987 would do. Wasn't it 1987? Yeah, 88. Yeah. Love in the Time of Monsters? Nope. 2014. Huh. How are these coming in ahead yeah, of Harry no, and the Hendersons? Because, right? man, it's like slash, slash film.com. They're like, when does Bigfoot rip off his head? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, man, I, wanna, I want the lovey Bigfoot. Well, the story in this one's basically a family resort in the woods sees its costumed Bigfoot monsters, uh, which is employees in furry suits, and they turn deadly after ingesting contaminated water. There it is. <laughs> uh, so the monsters in this one, they're fake and intentionally cheesy, but a surprise guest later on looks uh, far uh, far more impressive. Mm. So it's, it is a, it's a comedy slash horror movie. They're drinking so. that DHT. That'll do it. Yep. That'll do it. So it's gory. It says it's gory and it's funny, and it kind of takes you, takes you by surprise, but... Here funny you go. and gory, gory and funny. For, funny and gory, forey, if you will. Forey <laughs> was always hard for me to like wrap my head around because I can't. Some people can. They like they like get that that switch isn't hard for them to flip. So like some dude's arm gets ripped off and he's like, oh, they're like ha, and I'm like, I can't clap now, clap. I can't, I can't get over that when I see something like that. Like it's like the sweet and salty. You know, it's like the, the where you get the caramel popcorn with the cheesy popcorn and your mouth is like, what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't know what to do with this. What, right. was, what was that kung fu movie you showed me? One time, Kung Fury. Kung Fury. Kung. Well, wasn't that funny and gory? I mean, I, I don't know if there's a lot of blood in that or not, but it was a, hilarious. It is but, hilarious, but that maybe is a good a good comparison. But like some, gore, I can't remember if it was gory or not. But it, the the kung fu was amazing, and and the one it was just hel- hysterical. Yeah, it was just it was ridiculous, but it's ridiculously funny. Yeah. Speaking of gory and funny, the the new reboot of Scream. You know, I, I heard uh-huh. it's doing yeah. really well in the box office, but that it's kind of the same. It's it's a horror slasher film. It's very violent, but there are funny parts in it. You know, yeah. I've cracking. heard it's like a sequel or something like that. Is it adult? Is it a remake? I, no, you're right. It is a sequel. Yeah, yeah it's just it was like a 20 sequel. years later. Yeah, yeah. like literally. Uh, here you go. You guys were just talking about this one. I think Creature from Black Lake. Yes, yes! high five for. <laughs> Came in at number five, uh, All right. 1976. <laughs> yes, I will approve that one. I, I that sign is, off on that one. Full, full, full thing. That is Pat and Eddie approved. We watched yes. that. Andy, you have to watch it. We have to sit down and do it. One I, night. I might give it a gander. Hey, oh. Well, this is 1976, so Eddie was just about to make his way into this. Yeah, world. I'm like, I'm ready. Send me I'm in, ready. coach. <laughs> uh, so the story is basically friends cross paths with Bigfoot while exploring the Louisiana woods. As far as the the creature in the movie, nothing much to report here as we only see it in the shadows and silhouettes. Yep. Yeah. I guess they, they helped their budget. They, yeah. they went with a Hitchcock yeah, and like, just kind of use your imagination. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because uh, for the most part, in the bulk of the movie signs, um, 
you know, it's kind of similar. You don't yeah. get a whole lot of screen time with the actual aliens. It's more like suspense, and it's your mind playing tricks right. on you. I remember Pat and I both thinking, like, they handled the monster parts actually pretty well. Yeah. For not, we were like, clearly they were trying to do more of a Hitchcock, like, let your brain fill in the gaps. But it was the characters. Yeah. In the, the story. Yeah, it was just... Uh, it was fun. It was, it was chaos. We had a yeah. good time with it. Yeah, it was good. Well, it says the acting, like the storyline's decent, the acting's decent. Uh, it it's kind of minimalistic in terms of monster time on screen. So yeah, it, it that's set in probably nineteen eighties ish. I think I, I don't. It was really definitely remember. late seventies. Yeah, it was definitely. Oh, yeah, my yeah. It had 70s, all that vibe yeah. too, man. Yeah. All the fashion. Yeah, that's all the right. hair, the yeah. cars. Yeah. I and mean, you you were pointing out like I had shorts just like that. Yeah, you had like, the, <laughs> like the gym shorts that had the V knocks right in the leg and. It's just great, man. I can't recommend that enough. It's just fun, like Pat said. There you go. Now, this one, I'm actually interested in, in watching this one. It's from 2013. It's called Willow Creek. Yes, with uh, yeah, Bobcat, Bobcat Goldway Goldwait. Yeah. directed that one. I heard this one was... Actually, I think I started watching this one time, and it did look like it, it went pretty dark. I didn't finish, actually. Oh. but um, You got the Ghiblis. I got the Ghiblis, or I ran out of time. I never got back to it, but... Yeah, Bobcat Goldthwait uh, directed it. I think. Directed it, from what I understand. Uh, did he write it too? He might have. I don't know, but I, it it, got, it won some awards, I think, within that within that area. So the story in this one's basically a couple crosses paths with Bigfoot while exploring the northern California woods. Ironically enough, I believe Willow Creek was the the sighting of the first ever famous, or the, uh, the not, maybe not the first ever, but the famous Bigfoot footage. Yeah, yeah or was that Patterson Gimlin? I always get Bluff Creek and Willow Creek confused because one of them took the the famous Patterson Gimlin footage took place at one, and then one of the first ever reports was at the other Bluff Creek Willow Creek. I but, know that Bobcat, when he was interviewed, he said he wanted to literally film it in the area where it had some Bigfoot lore. Okay, he's a big believer, yeah. in Bigfoot and the Patterson Gimlin footage. So one thing that's interesting, it says this may be controversial for to have have this movie ranked so highly, but. Um, they don't really see you don't really see Bigfoot in the movie apparently, so I guess it leaves a lot to imagination. And as far as Bobcat Goldthwait, um, it says there's plenty of folks who hate him, um, who hate Bobcat Goldthwait foray into the horror genre, and it's difficult to argue with someone's dislike of a found footage film because I get it, found footage films can be really bad. That being said, this is easily one of the best thanks to its increasingly tense narrative. Yeah. Uh, truly likable protagonists uh, and some legitimately frightening sequences. Uh, the tent scene is a masterpiece of single static shot terror. And while the ending leaves some viewers wanting more, it's both a harrowing and refreshing turn for the rest of us. So, It was one of those movies I, re I remember early on. Uh, it's that human intervention that probably scares you the most. You know, they, they run into some you know, uh, rough-looking people that... There it like, is. like, oh, this is not going to go good. You done found yeah. the hill, people. Yeah. Man. So, number three, it's called Exists, and it came out in 2014. It's about a group of friends who cross paths with a Bigfoot in Texas, and they said that out of all the uh, Bigfoot movies on this list, the, the, the actual Bigfoot in this movie is the second most realistic next at, right after Harry and the Hendersons. Really? Bigfoot, yeah. So they invested some time in a, in a good costume in that one. Not to be confused with the film Exits, <laughs> which is about uh, the people who make fire exit signs. It's a really boring movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Number really? two, Night of the Demon, 1980. Uh, how's that for a picture? It just looks like... Yeah. Dang! <laughs> it's not going to lift your spirits. Is that, is that spaghetti sauce? I hope it's spaghetti sauce. <laughs> she's, a, she's a messy eater. Splattered all over the place. <laughs> so it's about a college professor and his students cross paths with Bigfoot creature that they're looking for in the woods, but the truth behind its existence is even more disturbing. And, well, well uh, that actually sounds a lot like the plot for um, Black Lake. Yeah. Because there's a college professor in that. There too, is. And his students. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Anyway, it's, mm. it's kind of a low-budget film. And, uh, but it got number one. Number, number two. Number two. two. Yeah, but it says uh, it's got a got a strong uh, ranking. I think this is actually R because uh, there's oh, some yeah. nudity. It's very gory. Uh, you get a little bit of everything in there. Put it Not on. one for the kids. Not nope. one for the children. Number one. <gasps> came out in 2006. It's called Abominable. Oh. And that's not... Not to be confused with the uh, <laughs> with the DreamWorks cartoon that came out <laughs> a couple years back. Kids, which... I rented Abominable. <laughs> <Click>. Wrong one. <laughs> no, but the the for 
you know, if you have young children and you're looking for something family friendly to watch, came out just a couple of years ago. It's yeah. called Abominable. It was great. Yeah, I've seen it with Gwen. It was great. Tearjerker ending. Yeah. Really good. This uh, this one's not not that. So the story is a I'd wheelchair. Well, <laughs> you'll be crying yourself to sleep. Uh, a wheelchair bound man witnesses a Bigfoot creeping around while spying on his neighbors. Um, let's see. It's the monster's big and fierce and effective as heck, but and there's no denying that he looks like a. Um, I can't say that word. A booger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we anyway, found out, a it, booger. Uh, Here's here's this uh, critic's take on it, and then we'll wrap up the segment. It's one of the few Bigfoot movies that gets each element right, so it has fun mashing its rear v- rear window inspired plot into a creature feature with cool looking monsters at its center. There's gore, there's wisecracking, there's legendary uh, roster of supporting players, including Lance Hen- uh, Henriksen, Jeffrey Combs, and Paul Gleason. Movie's also goofy at times, but folks looking for a fun, unassuming monster movie staring at uh, rampaging Bigfoot can hardly do better as it takes all the boxes of a memorable, entertaining monster movie. I have to watch that one later. Abominable? Abominable? Yeah, Abominable. And that was number one. Number one. I would like to enter into the running. You're going to put a name in the hat here? A Bigfoot movie that I saw, and it could be argued it's not a 100% Bigfoot movie, but it's got a lot of Bigfoot in it. It's called, has, uh, uh, I know, Pat's favorite character actor, the one and only, the man with the, talk about abominable, the indomitable mustache of Sam Elliott. Oh. <laughs> see? see? We got man yeah. crush. I have a man crush on that one. Called The Man Who Killed, killed. Hitler and Then the Bigfoot. And Then the Bigfoot, yeah. Yeah. I watched this over a year ago. Actually, no, a little more than, a little less than a year ago um, with a friend of mine here in town named Al, who was a indie comic book creator and was looking for some inspiration for some monsters. I'm like, we should watch this. And it's about a man who's like a trained assassin who took out Hitler and had to go, they had to send him into the mountains. In this story, Bigfoot is neither kind nor gentle and is wrecking shop uh, in the mountains. And they have to basically send him in to help take out the Bigfoot. Take out the Bigfoot. And it was a crazy movie. But it was actually really entertaining. I really recommend it. I've seen that one on lists before. I haven't actually seen it yet. Yeah, but. it was really entertaining. Hmm. Yeah. Just the name alone. It has to be the strangest movie title in history. I was like, well, how did they... And they said they, they specifically wrote this movie for Sam Elliott in mind. When they came at him, they were like, we, we need you in this. This movie will not exist without you in it. So he's like, well, how can I say no to that? <laughs> but yeah, the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. Uh, happy viewing, yeah. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, with that, we'll ease into our main mystery of the day. Here we go. From the opulence and excess of Beverly Hills to luxurious destinations around the globe, it's time to rub shoulders with the privileged and successful among us as Paranormal Dads now offers you a look into the paranormal lifestyles of the rich and famous. Oscar-winning actor Nicholas Cage is the proud owner of a nine-foot pyramid mausoleum in New Orleans. The structure resides in St. Louis One Cemetery, the oldest cemetery in the Big Easy. Cage purchased two plots and had the tomb built in 2010 for his future funeral. It's inscribed with the Latin words omnia ab uno, which means everything from one. Some say that Cage's love of voodoo motivated him to erect his tomb in the same ancient cemetery as Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen. The White Pyramid looks out of place among the centuries-old surrounding graves. Its only adornment is a line of lip prints apparently left by adoring fans. Up to now, Cage has remained silent about the purpose of the tomb. Some speculate it's a nod to his National Treasure movie franchise. Others think the pyramid is where the actor will regenerate his immortal self. The rumor around town is that Cage has considered himself cursed since owning the LaLaurie Mansion in the French Quarter for a short time, and he feels being next to Marie Laveau will free him. For the Paranormal Dads, I'm Pat, and this has been another Paranormal Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And now it's time for the main mystery. <laughs> So here we go. 
the second installment of our Alaska series, getting us through the winter months, and uh, we're gonna um, we're gonna go to higher elevations this time around. The Japan Airlines cargo flight 1628 incident. Oh. You guys ever heard of this? No. Yes, I, I believe I've uh, I've heard this or seen a bit of it on a documentary UFO case, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Japan Airlines, also known as JAL, they had a flight coming in uh, from Paris to Tokyo Narita Airport. I've been there, by the way. Oh yeah. It's a huge place. Yeah. Huge. On uh, November seventeenth, nineteen eighty six. Mm. It's a Boeing seven forty seven uh, doing the Reykjavik. Uh, I believe that's in Iceland, Mm -hmm. to Anchorage, Alaska section of the flight. Uh, It's in command by uh, Captain Kenju Terauchi, and uh, he's a former fighter pilot with more than 10,000 hours of flight time. So More comfortable in the air than he is on land. Yeah, so he's been around a little bit. Had a a total crew of three, um, Captain Terauchi and and, uh, the the co-pilot and the flight engineer. Uh, at five o'clock in the evening, uh, the 747 is cruising, and the captain notices two crafts to his left and about 2,000 feet below them. At first, he thought they were military planes, uh, but then uh, things got a little weird after that. About 5.18 p.m., the two objects moved to a position about 500 feet in front of the JAL flight, and the two objects appear to be producing heat as the captain could actually feel the warmth of the objects glow. And uh, they started to see some really bright lights up ahead of them. Uh, and that's when they kind of started uh, going into air traffic control mode and uh, contacting air traffic control. And the first officer radios them and says, uh, do you have any traffic in, at our 11 o'clock position? So ATC uh, asked them to repeat their transmission as it's become garbled. And that was a big thing about this this case is that uh, there was a lot of interference in their radio. Oh, wow. Um, JL, uh, or ATC says they don't have any traffic. And JL responds that they do have two objects ahead of them. And air traffic control says, well, can you tell us what kind of airplanes they are, you know? Uh, but they couldn't tell them. All they could see was the light, and it was pretty bright, too. I mean, if you're feeling the heat off it, yeah. uh, you know, it's pretty intense stuff. Um, so um, air traffic control instructs them to keep an eye on the traffic and, and also request their altitude. Uh, well, the, then the traffic begins to take a position on either side of the JAL flight, so it's kind of like... One is off to the left and one is off to the right. And they're both still in front of them, but they're kind of splitting up now. And at that point, uh, the JAL flight says they can see the two, the two objects, but they report that they have nav lights and strobe lights that uh, are yellow um, and white. And at about 523, the objects leave abruptly, uh, just take off faster than you know they could they could believe out of sight and so at that point the the captain now notices a pale band of light that mirrors their altitude and speed and direction so the onboard radar officer confirms that the object is in their 10 o'clock position now and they report that to air traffic control and they can't see anything so uh, it was not long after that they got a report from the, the military who said that uh, they were picking up something, but now it had moved behind them. And so the captain said that the traffic is, quote unquote, quite big. And by this time, the pilots decide it's time to get away from the object and they ask for a new heading. Later on, they reported that this thing being quite big was actually four times the size of an aircraft carrier in the air in the air wow i mean these guys are trained professionals i mean they're they're good at judging distance and size that's that's what they do yeah yeah so um air traffic control proves the heading change to steer the jal flight away from the object and so the 747 makes a direction change it also lowers their altitude down to about thirty-one thousand feet 
but the object manages to stay in formation with them, so it's just kind of shadowing them. And so finally, uh, air traffic control says, okay, let's see what, let, let, let's take things up a notch. And so they advise the jet to make a full 360 degree turn to see what the UFO does. Oh, wow. So they're basically... Make a ridiculous maneuver. Show, show us your hand. Are you messing with us or are you just, you know, in the neighborhood? So they do a full 360 and, and the UFO um, follows them. Uh, at that point, the JAL flight reports that they don't see the object any longer. However, the air traffic control at Elmendorf Air Force Base reports to Anchorage that the object is still following them, and air traffic control will no notifies the the airplane that these guys are, <laughs> these guys are still behind you. Anchorage asks the Air Force if they're going to scramble anyone to investigate, and the Air Force says we're looking into it right now. So. So Anchorage uh, asked the JAL flight if they would like a military, if they would like military intervention, and the cap and Captain Teriuchi denies the request. He was familiar with a similar case back in 1948. This was known as the Mantell UFO incident, in which a Kentucky Air National Guard pilot was killed in the crash of his P-51 Mustang when he was dispatched to investigate a UFO encounter another plane was having near Franklin, Kentucky. And so he didn't want anything to happen to any of the uh, the jets. And, and, right. and so he decided, no, we're going to handle this on our own. However, Anchorage uh, wasn't just going to stop there. They, they instead sent a United Flight 69, which was in the area, and some other flights in the area towards the JAL flight in the hope that they can do further reconnaissance of the situation. I find that kind of funny. Yeah, I don't want any military help, but let's send this United flight over there, let's see what they can do. civilian flights <laughs> with people like, where are we going? We gotta chase these UFOs down. Now, apparently they didn't get too close. They were still like 20 kilometers away when, when they were making their observations. But they reported that they don't see anyone trailing the jet. And at this point, the UFO had vanished. And uh, so flight 1628, continues on to Anchorage and safely touches down at 6.20 p.m. So they finally made it home, or at least to the, the landing site before they continue on to Tokyo. So the captain officially cites to the FAA that the subject was a UFO. And unfortunately, uh, he also made some comments to some reporters uh, in Japan when he got back. And the JAL grounds him for talking to the press and moved him to a desk job. Years later, he was reinstated. But uh, yeah. but uh, that's sad. Yep. He's just he's just telling them the truth, telling them what he saw. Yep. And you, you get punished for telling the truth. Yep. You made us look silly, and you know, especially back in the '80s. Yeah. There was still like only recently now that the government has been like, yeah, they're real. It's right. always been a point of ridicule. Yeah. Yeah. Like, anyway. I'm surprised they they approved him to do a full 360 degree turn. That's like that's not normal. Yeah, I mean, no. Even if you're if you're especially on a, with a 747. Oh yeah, that's a big <laughs> circle. I mean, yeah. but can you imagine you're on a flight, a long flight, nonetheless, and and you're you're going straight as a passenger. You know something's up if you're doing a full Wait, 360. Are we turning around? Yeah, why are we turning again around and again? Oh, we're going in a full circle. Yeah. Well, this was actually a cargo flight though. Too, oh, so the, gotcha. the, there were just the three on board, gotcha. but but still. but still. Yeah. And my, my other thought is, like, how hot was that heat? If they can feel yeah, it through the window? that's what I was thinking. It's like... That's like radiation, it, you would think. I mean, I guess sometimes you can kind of feel the sun. If you're driving into the sun, you can feel sure. that coming through your windshield. Yeah. But that's some serious heat. That's some serious heat. Yeah. And the size of an aircraft carrier? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get heat, like, from another from another car's headlight, right? No, no. So whatever this was, it, was, it wasn't just a light. It yeah. was like a system, it was a, force whatever. a heat source like of said, some kind. Like the, the, the hole it was tearing in the time-space continuum. It was a flux capacitor. <laughs> yeah, like 1. 1.21 gigawatts. So, question though. Yeah. Uh, did they see, they saw the light. They like saw the, the light. How did they figure out the size of an aircraft carrier? Was that what they were getting off of radar? They, or what they, they could just see like... The, the silhouette of it. Okay. You know, so, so they could tell it was a solid object. I see. Okay. It was kind of blacking out what was in front of them. I see. But they could they could see the lights and they could kind of see the silhouette of of the object. And I've even seen pictures that they drew and it was it was actually kind of like a I'd describe it as a fat flying saucer. Mm. So it, it it looked kind of like 
your textbook flying saucer, except it was more oblong. It was more round. Yeah. And then it also had, you know, kind of like the little dome you see of the flying saucers in the 50s. It had kind of a dome shape, uh, but but it was large and, wow. and with, with with the bright lights. My gosh. So, so the officials at the FAA, uh, Alaska FAA, request from their superiors, so what do we tell the media, you know, who had latched onto the story? They were told by a senior FAA official, just tell them you're unaware of any such incident, and uh, it was probably a stealth bomber, which was n- new to the skies back then in 1986. Yeah, they were just starting, starting to show up. Uh, and then the next day, a vice admiral in Washington, D.C., who watched the radar data with the voice tapes, asked them not to talk about the incident with anyone until given the okay. So shortly thereafter, like in a matter of days, there was a presentation uh, prepared by the FAA and given to the FBI, the CIA, and President Reagan's scientific study team. After the meeting, all in attendance were told the information in the meeting was secret, and the meeting had never taken place. There it is. So this has come out like in, they've written books on this. Um, there's been interviews, you know, people coming out in the press who were present at these meetings, and um, this is what they said took place. The incident is also special in that it's the first UFO incident with recorded radar data. Ah, so yep, not just that. visual. Yeah. So three months later, the FAA formally releases the results of their three-month investigation in March of 1987. They they retracted the earlier FAA suggestions that air traffic controllers confirmed a UFO and called the target following the plane was a split radar image. So whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they also stated the FAA did not have enough material to confirm something was there. And although they accepted the descriptions by the crew, they said they were unable to support what they saw. That's because it was swamp gas reflecting off a yeah. flock of seagulls. That's what exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's Bigfoot farts manifesting themselves in the upper atmospheres. <laughs> the, the funny thing is two other UFO sightings were reported in Alaska right after that JAL encounter. The first was on January 29th, so this is like two months later. Uh, and that involved an Alaska Airlines aircraft. And the second one occurred a day after that one. Uh, that would have been on January 30th, involving a U.S. Air Force aerial refueling craft, a KC-135. So this is actually an Air Force plane reporting a ufo also alaska's a weird place man not just on the ground but in the skies and the waters and the woods it's it's a big place a lot happening there's gotta be like just a ton of ufo sightings out there there's just gotta be yeah and one of the things about this story uh they they talk about and and i don't know if it kind of hurts the pilot's credibility apparently he had made two other ufo reports mm. uh prior to this one so you know you start to wonder oh is this the guy who cries wolf um but you know he's obviously dude had ten thousand hours of flight time he was a military fighter pilot trained observer you would That's think he knows point. what he's doing yeah and i mean uh in the most recent news there was the when they came out last year now with the disclosure and uh, specifically regarding the go fast object, and then the also the what they call the other one, uh, the tic tac, the, the tic tac, and the go fast. Um, one of the guys, I think it was for the go fast. They were like the one that went under the water. They were like, "How often do you see this?" And he's like, "We've seen dozens of these yeah. things almost every day." Yeah, you start to hear more and more of that coming out. Mm-hmm. So it's like this guy having had a multiple. It's not a shock, you know. Well, like, oh, he's reported this before. He's probably full crap. Like, come on. Well, the other thing to consider is Alaska, due to a low population, you got crystal clear dark skies, perfect yep. for UFO viewing, and and not, you know, and not only that, but to boot, you have a lot of these puddle jumper planes. You know, a lot of the places in Alaska are so inaccessible, you can't drive there. Right. So you have these these private planes that can land on water. You got a lot of people flying. A lot of uh, what do they call them? Bush pilots. Right. Yeah. You know, flying around, I guarantee you go to Alaska, talk to some of these pilots, a lot of them have seen weird things. Oh, sure. And many of the planes that fly through that area are not just 
going to Alaska. They're jumping mm-hmm. over the polar cap. You know, they're coming from Europe to Asia or, yep. or to the North America. And uh, it's just a, a, you know, you got shipping lanes. It's kind of like an aerial lane that you got a lot of flights going through there. Yeah. Uh, like you guys were saying, like, like little to no light pollution, I would imagine, yeah. in, in Alaska. Like very few cities. It's a weird place. Kind of magical. You know, I was there in 2007, I believe it was. A little family vacation. Took a cruise ship. And, oh, yeah. You know, you'd stop at different harbors, different towns, do little excursions. But, gosh, you talk about squatchy. Oh, my God. It's just... You know, it's pretty, it's beautiful, but don't go off the beaten path. Yeah. How many people last episode we were talking go missing there? 60,000? 60,000. 20 years, 60,000 people have gone missing in Alaska. See, you know, just stay on the trails. I mean, that's more than Bermuda Triangle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot more. Well, and this is all happening within what they call the, and Pat, you pointed this out, the Alaska, the Alaska Triangle. Yeah. 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 Well, in next episode, we'll have more of the same for the main mystery. We're going to keep this Alaska-themed main mystery uh, coming at you for a few more episodes here. And I'll be up to bat next next time around, so I'll round up something good there. But uh, any other final thoughts to put this one to bed, guys? I just love me some UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> well, this one's cool because it's it's, it's from, you know, a professional pilot. Somebody's yeah. up in the sky quite a bit, and, yep. and uh, that's why it really stood out to me as kind of a uh, an interesting UFO story. Totally. But... No. Uh, Hey, thank you for everybody who partakes in our social media content, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're all over that stuff. Join us at ParanormalDads.com. And uh, if you got any interesting UFO stories for us, uh, reach out to us at uh, ParanormalDads at gmail.com. Thank you to all of our friends over at freesounds.org for all the sound effects that you hear now and also to premiumbeats.com for any cool music that you may have heard, our theme tune and all that. And uh, I think, is that everything? And thanks thanks to everyone who bought a copy of my book. Yes! Yes. The Sky Diaries. Yeah. Really appreciate the support. Did did great. It's it's first week and, uh, you know, it continues to do well. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. So got a, we got a good little support group here of uh, of listeners and uh, own tight little tight knit community. So we appreciate uh, you listening and and being a you know supporter of the podcast. And we'll keep cranking out new episodes for you as often as we can. Take care, everybody. See ya. So long. I'm done. I'm right. We can talk more about this, but, the edit, but I've been like, hey man, we shouldn't let that thing die on the vine. We should try to pull something out of it. DMT. <laughs> Hi, as a kite. DMT. Say good night. DMT. Sleeping tight. DMT. Feeling all right. All right. Need a drink? Cheers, mates. This episode is sponsored by A&W Root Beer. Zero sugar. All the fun. But no caffeine. (laughs) Uh, All right.